0: Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm your host, Chloe Lula. Thanks for being here with me. For our episode this week, I interviewed Scottish novelist and playwright, Irvine Welsh, who's best known for his 1993 book, Spotting. though he went on to pen 12 other novels, five short story collections, and several plays and screenplays. His work raises crucial and provocative questions around class, identity, and the human condition. And it also incorporates a lot of running themes around nightlife and DJ culture. Welsh has always harbored an avid love of electronic music, and Acid House specifically. In fact, as he reveals in this interview, he's always wanted to be an electronic musician more than he's wanted to be an author. And he's now turning his career towards DJing and music production again. In our interview, we talk about his enduring love of nightlife, as well as the grueling creative process, his new record label, and how club music has changed with the advent of new democratizing music production technologies and the rise of the bedroom techno producer.
1: Dance music used to be made by people who danced. You know, people went out and um, they went to nightclubs and they danced and they thought this is great. And they kind of um, they got you know they they cobbled together their machines and they started to make music. And they kind of went back out to clubs and they had it and they made music and they DJed and they went back out. Now it's possible you can, you, you, know, you can be somebody who's sat in a bedroom um, all their life and has never been inside a dance music club who can make actually pretty acceptable dance music.
0: Just a note before we dive in, this podcast was recorded as a live keynote speech in front of an audience at the Nighttime Industries Association Conference in London at E1 two weeks ago. Thank you to the team for inviting me to speak, and thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So, to open up the chat, I thought we could begin by briefly touching on your connection to clubbing and nightlife. I mean, this is a running thread through all of your work. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you notoriously draw a lot of your literary anecdotes from your own biography. So what was it like coming of age in Scotland in the 70s and 80s? And what role did nightlife and club culture play in your life?
1: Um, I was always quite nocturnal. I mean, since uh, I've only really appreciated daylight since I started um, writing, basically. You now I really love it. You know, I love the, the daytime, but... Um, I could never wait for the night, I always used to like to go out at night, I stayed up late. I was a, kind of one of these annoying kids that would never come in when it got dark and um, my mum and dad used to have to go looking around for us and all that and bring us back, basically. Um, and because in Scotland it gets dark all the time very quickly, you know. But um, yeah, I just always enjoyed the vibe when the sun went down and um, I mean... Everything I always felt that you kind of things like I hated like school and work and all that you had to do them during the day and they were things to get out of the way and um, you really you really kind of there was the excitement of the night and um, I always sort of vibed on that and um, then um, you know when when uh, when the punk thing kicked off I couldn't wait to get down to London and get immersed in that and I was very fortunate that I had relatives in West London, so I could, it was like a home from home for me.
0: So, what were the punk scenes crossovers with electronic music at that time, and how did you end up finding a home with acid house? Um, I think before that, I
1: think like from kind of my generation, like Bowie was the big key because uh, he was like. For for working class kids, he was a one man art school basically, and introduced you to all this kind of music, like um, the the um, the kind of the the New York American underground punk scene, like Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground, uh, the soul scene with Luther Vandross and the Young Americans era, uh, but also to craft work and electronic music. So that always kind of struck a chord with me. I kind of really vibed on that kind of music. And I was always a big fan of disco. I mean, I was like, um, I had a dual identity of a kind of sort of um, a punk and then a kind of disco guy. And punks and disco were completely different tribes in those days. So I'd be dressed as a punk and then I would um, get out of the punk gear into my disco togs and be really absolutely shit-scared in a bag of nerves in case any of my mates saw me sort of sneaking into the disco, all done up to the nines. So there was always that sort of uh, duality um, and that kind of... Um, that not wanting to necessarily be... You know, being energised by all these different scenes, but not necessarily wanting to be stuck in any one tribe.
0: Um Curious, you know, in the literary world, you've created clubs and drug use are often depicted as sites for escapism and hedonism, rather than necessarily places of communion. Like in tree Spotting, it's really, uh, it's a painkiller for existential depression and confusion. But um, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the benefits of club life and, and nightlife, and if they can be important crucibles for culture and counterculture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I remember I kind of once wrote, maybe a bit pretentiously, that um, raves and the the chill-out zones and raves were the the new boot camps of interaction. And it sounds a bit poncy now, but I kind of actually do believe that. I mean, um, I met so many different people through the whole rave and house experience, as I did through punk, but um, you had much more of, um, and probably because of the influence of ecstasy, you had much more of a qualitative experience. You kind of, um, you met somebody and you got chatting to them and you were instantly kind of best friends within about kind of uh, 20, as long as it, <laughs> about as long as it took for the pill to kick in, maybe about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, you were kind of best friends forever. Um, and these these are very sort of, um, these are very heady days. I mean, you think about the, um, The sort of uh, the drugs and the dancing and the parties and the sort of um, the crazy fun. But um, much more interesting and much more lasting, I think, was the friendships and relationships you made with people then. Um, And not just in the town that you live in, you know what I mean? We, start, we, we had a little kind of posse that just went around everywhere. We went to Leeds, to back to basics, to Manchester, to the hacienda, um, up and down between London and Edinburgh, to Glasgow, to the sub club and the arches, and um, you know Sheffield, the Republic. We just went around all these different places uh, and met all these different people. And um, and then when you know I, when I, I got involved in DJing, I had the chance to sort of. Um, Basically, take the show on the road and get out. You know, and meet people in all these different countries. You know, from all from all over the world, and um, make a network of friends who are basically still friends to this day. And uh, yeah, so it was a, it was just a, such a, a great time. And it's you can't imagine that thing happening during the day. And you know, I think that um, you have to. I mean, you have to. Th- you know, there's, a, there's a very um, there's a very kind of primal thing that people have about this kind of tremendous fear of the night particularly kind of straight people kind of you know sort of uh, they think that all the nefarious stuff goes on at night time and during the day is that uh, where, where the respectable people hang out well I mean um, all the, the financial manipulation and chicanery and all the decision makings that, that kind of basically fuck everybody's life up happens during the day, basically. In offices and, at lap, and, and on consoles and stuff and, 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 and in Zoom calls. All the good things really happen at night and the, the, the real freedom happens at night, the real expression happens at night, the culture is generated at night. Economic activity doesn't stop when it gets dark. So, um, so I think that um, what people who are working in the nighttime industries face is a, very, um, is a very primal conception of what nighttime is and what happens at nighttime from, uh, in the eyes of power, basically in the eyes of very kind of um, uh, uh, straight power elites who operate in entrenched ways and have entrenched ways of thinking.
0: No, I, I think you're totally right. And I th- one major effect we all saw from the pandemic was that it moved people almost exclusively into online spaces. And over the last couple of years, I've felt this renewed push towards like, a technological imperative, I guess. And I wonder what your opinion is on how this has affected connectedness and um, community well, I
1: think, it, I mean, it's given all the schemers and planners a leg up in, um, in their efforts to render us all kind of posthuman. You know, it's like the, the whole uh, AI Trojan horse. And it's, you know, it's not the technology, it's the control of the technology that's the, the important thing. Um, and we, we have, um, you know, I, I think, I'm, I'm hoping, I pray and actually expect that uh, this summer is going to be crazy, and everybody just collectively says, fuck off, the roaring 20s are back, we're having it again. And I, I kind of um, I have a genuine belief that you can't stop humanity, you can't stop people from wanting to connect and wanting to 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 basically have it again. And, um, you know, we're, we're, I know that the, the economy is bad and, and everybody's been ripped off by elites, but. I think that so much of it is psychological. I think people will go out again. I think it will happen this year.
0: No, I hope that you're right. And I feel the same optimism, but at the same time, um, I was reading the BBC yesterday (laughs) and they republished the report from the NTIA, which pointed to the cost of living crisis and venues really needing more financial help than they even did during the pandemic. And I wonder what you think the implications for small venues and independent artistry in general are.
1: Well, I mean, so many people were were basically hung out to dry. I mean, I I was very fortunate in that um, as primarily, I mean, uh, there was, we didn't do any music gigs, we didn't get any kind of bookings or anything like that, obviously. Uh, But unfortunately, my main activity is writing and you just, you know, being locked up is actually good for me because it stops me from going out and distracting myself and uh, forces me to get on with my work. Um, but most of my friends who are like musicians and DJs and, um, you know, promoters, uh, nightclub owners and, you know, um, hospitality industry staff, they had a terrible time during lockdown. They, you know, it's like the the tremendous... Um, tax on their mental health and the tremendous and the, the, the they were they were really hung out to dry to a large extent and given very little or no support at all from the government um, and we now look at this and we're start, we're really I mean a lot of people who kind of accepted it and accepted that this was um, that this was all about the defence of uh, the NHS and kind of um, and about the def- you know about saving lives. Uh, are now beginning to to have second thoughts about it, and they are now beginning to see that um, this is this was a this is a bit more spurious. I mean, you look back on it, it does seem to be a bit more spurious. But irrespective of how you feel about the the politics of it, um, there's no doubt that uh, the nighttime economy was was highly discriminated against and uh, the creative people working in the nighttime in, in in the nighttime economy like musicians DJs producers were very much discriminated against as well um, it's like uh, for someone like me I can just write books and I can just, like, and I can bring out books um, and people will read them or I can you know can we managed to shoot a, a TV show you know uh, during lockdown um, and get it out there and it did well but uh if you're uh, a musician or dj or producer you can it's all right saying you can sit at home for two years and make tons and tons of music but you've got to be able to showcase this you've got to be able to showcase this at gigs you've got to be able to showcase this at events otherwise it's just you're just throwing more stuff out into the ether that people kind of, um, you know, that's, that, that it means nothing, there's no social context for it, there's no way of, of um, feeling the experience of it, particularly for music, because it is so much about kind of the interface with live performance.
0: This might be a bigger question than you could answer since it's more uh, policy-oriented, but what do you think the next steps for Clubs and governments and individuals should be to preserve underground culture.
1: Well, I'm not a, okay. I'm not a politician or a policy guy, but uh, and it's it's always easy to say that um, money should be put into to this and money should be put into that. But I really think that we have to get back to the notion of a high wage, high tax economy. You know, and I think that's that's something we, we need to to get the, the concept of a redistribution of wealth back into society, and I think that um, you know in general the world has far too many billionaires and far too few millionaires. I think we should, you know you should basically anybody who's got any more than five million quid take it off them and give it to everybody else in a lottery. You know, just give you know just have a national lottery. Give everybody, give everybody that wins enough. I don't know how many, how many millions she would get if you took all the billionaires, other than five million, away from them, um, and then you have a lottery and you give everybody that wins the lottery sort of uh, a million quid each. Now it's tough on the people that lose out, but it's done in an arbitrary way, and therefore what what you would have is you would have if it's some if it's somebody who's going kind to of just wants to to sit around and piss it up. Great. The pubs do a roaring trade. Greg's the bakeries, do a roaring trade. Um, <laughs> they, you know, they've got enough money to pay for their um, to pay their own medical bills, so there's no burden on the NHS when they sort of explode for having, having eaten their fifth McDonald's of the day. Um, but uh, other people, you know, they they're. they're um, they might want to set up businesses they might want to, to grow investments and all that. so you have this uh, this massive economic pump priming and uh, you know instead of money being taken out of the economy money's back in the economy and circulates and that's that should be the kind of aim of every uh, of society now is to make everybody a millionaire and make nobody a billionaire
0: Um, that would that would be an ideal world to live in. I, I agree. I was reading some interviews that you've done in the past. And I know you've spoken quite a bit about the effect that living in a capitalist society has on art and art making. And in one recent interview, you said. Today you basically write into marketing holes. You write thrillers or crime or romance or science fiction. You shoot into these holes. Now it's very retail driven. It's very entertainment led rather than art led. Um, I wonder if if you feel that art today is being directed by marketing incentives rather than a real creative impulse. And if you also see parallels in the dance music industry.
1: Well, I think it's you know, I mean, I think this has definitely happened. We, we, are, there's forces, um, ideological and technological forces that are moving us into a post-human society. And the things that make us human, the two main things that make us human are love and art. You know, so we're getting into um, we're getting into a thing where, where we're not really. Allowed to feel any kind of pain or hurt and all that. So, if we don't feel pain or hurt, there's no growth because we don't, you know, if we don't feel pain, we don't really know what pleasure is. We have to kind of experience a full range of human emotions and we can't kind of um, continue to edit things out and to make them safe because they're, they're, they're negative or offend us or upset us in some kind of way. We have to experience that full range, and I'm not talking about willful cruelty or obnoxious kind of behaviour towards people. I'm just talking about the normal kind of human sort of ups and downs and peaks and troughs that everybody has. Um, so, I think that uh, it's you know when you say art's under threat, I think it is, and I think humanity is under. But I think it's because humanity is under threat, um, and I think that you know now you you have the technology whereby. Um, like dance music, for example, dance music used to be made by people who danced. You know, people went out and um, they went to nightclubs and they danced and they thought, "This is great." And they kind of, um, they got, you know, they they cobbled together their machines and they started to make music and they kind of went back out to clubs and they had it and they made music and they DJed and they went back out. Now it's possible you can, you you, know, you can be somebody who sat in a bedroom. Um, all their life and has never been inside a dance music club who can make actually pretty acceptable dance music. You know, they can just through... And it's not a criticism of people who do that because that's uh, the, the sort of um, the technological imperative for kids now. But uh, they don't really need to go out to be able to make brilliant dance music. You know, it might... It, the, for people of um, my era... It might seem a bit soulless or derivative or have been done before, but um, you know, kids—they would just say, "But you're just an old fucker. You don't kind of get it." And they'd be right to an extent as well. But a thing that um, the more you, you the more you recycle things with a experience from a, a media culture, and we all we're all producers now, and you take it away from a street culture where things are contested. Things come about uh, because they're contested, because they're argued, they're, they're disputed over, you know, like um, mods will argue with Teds, will argue with punks, will argue with skinheads, will argue, you know, about what is this sort of, um, you know, about music. And out of that, you know, out of the, these clashes come a different form of music. It's like the kind of, um, it's like that Hegelian kind of um, sort of, uh, kind, you know, uh, Sort of um, kind of thesis, uh, antithesis, and sin- synthesis. We lose all that now because it's a very top-down culture. Media culture is a very hierarchical, top-down culture. Um, some influencer on Instagram will say something. Some pop star will endorse it, and then everybody feels that they don't want to miss out or they don't want to be um, they don't want to stand out in their peer group because peer groups are very important and your peer group is now the world of everybody your own age rather than the people that you used to hang out in the street with. So that, te- that leads to a level and down of culture and an inability to take risks in the same way.
0: Yeah, I think we live in an age where it's amazing how tools to create music have become so democratized, and so many people have access to these tools that didn't before, but at the same time, um, I agree that it, it feels like there's almost like a homogenization of music and art, to a certain extent.
1: Well, I mean, it's like, I mean, again, again it's like, I think it's the control of the technology and the hierarchical nature of the world that's the, the important issue, not the actual technology itself, I mean, it's kind of saved my life. You know, I, I, somebody like me, who is hopelessly non-musical, isn't a musician, can do music now. You know, I mean, I kind of, I've no, um, all I wanted to do was play guitar but, and or you know, play keyboards. I've no keyboarding or fretboarding skills, so I couldn't do music. You know, I, can, I should have these long fingers. I should be able to do, kind of, um, to do great stuff on a piano or a, or a, a guitar. but. I can't, I'm just not wired that way, it doesn't connect up to the brain. But I can sit there with a program on a computer and I can make music all day long now, you know, so it's a massive liberation for me. And not just in music. I mean I couldn't have um, I couldn't have written um, a shopping list before the word processor, basically. You know, I couldn't, you know I wouldn't have been able to write longhand a book um, I wouldn't have had the patience to do it. So the technology has enabled people like me. Uh, it's been a fantastic thing, but the technology kind of uh, there has to be a balance. The technology has to come with a whole experiential dimension. You know, it has to interface with the experiential dimension of somebody going out there and living their life. Um, you know, you you sort of. Um, you you have to have that connection between the two. If it's all just somebody messing around on a screen and there's nothing out there, you know there is no social life out there. We're all living in these little boxes. Then art is basically fucked. Humanity is fucked. So we have to get back out again. We have to encourage everybody to get back out again.
0: On that note, I want to talk a little bit about your music career. I know that you tried to make it as a musician before writing, so I understand. Can you tell me a little bit about that and um, your decision to return to it again recently?
1: It's terrible, it's, it's still haunted by it because it was all I wanted to do and kind of still, you know, <laughs> still all I want to do, which is incredibly sad, but, um, but yeah, but, uh, I mean, I was always the last, I could never, I mean, I started off, I can't sing a note, um, so then I went to playing guitar, um, no dexterity in the guitar, so I did what a lot of failed guitarists do and went to play bass. Um, still terrible, could never keep time with the drummer, um, and uh, just basically everybody moved on, and I was the guy sort of... Um, Left, you know, they, they would, you know, they would always, they wouldn't, they wouldn't so much kick me out of the band, although they did a few times. But they actually all left at the same time, you know, and I was a band, and they were they formed a different band and they got a new bassist. And but uh, um, one of the the nice things about being a bassist or even a failed bassist is that. Um, it does help you kind of with the beat, you know. It does help you keep keep time if you're kind of bass conscious. So it's night, nice, you know. It's like I can just about kind of DJ. I can just about mix in the beat now after all these years of, of doing that, you know. Um, and that's what I did after, uh, you know, when I I'd sort of um, failed as a musician. Um, I started DJing, and uh, I wasn't particularly. A, a good dj by any means but um uh I, it was just beginning to get somewhere when the book um the book the first book that i wrote took off and uh basically i kind of stopped dj in a part you know, just you know just very occasionally uh i would go out and do stuff but um because dj is ours You know, our nighttime economy hours basically, and um, writers' hours are during the day, you know. So I kind of, when I got into that stage that I was just coming home with a box of records and then ready to just get up and start writing, I realized that uh, one of the things had to go, you know. And um, I'd rather it was the writing, but it was more successful with the writing, so I had to stick with the writing. (laughs)
0: Uh, I can empathize with (laughs) everything that you just said. I know that you have, so you have at least one record label, or do you have two?
1: Well, it's one record label, really, but we've got two imprints now within within the label. Now we, got, we started up a label uh, called Jack Said What, um, and um, I still don't know why we've called it Jack Said What, like it was uh, uh, myself, Steve Mack, and Carl Loban. Um, Decided we'd just start up this label. You know, we had this little techno thing going, and we thought we'll bring it, we'll bring our own stuff out on this label, and then um, we just started to basically just kind of um, signed up a lot of our mates and brought stuff out, and it kind of took off. You know, we didn't have any grand scheme or grand design, um, but it's doing really well. You know, which is quite a, a surprise, and we we focus mainly on um, on artists in the Brighton area so it's close to London you know there's a, there's a scene in Brighton so you can actually have them doing gigs locally and uh, and build up the consciousness of the label there and it's so close to London you can put things on in London um, I think that's been a that's been kind of stage one. Our next stage, stage two, this year, we're going to do more, kind of Jack says, what gigs were the artists that we have on the label and do some of them all over the country. And um, stage three will be to hopefully kind of become a sort of more of a, a national rather than a regional brand because we want to... We want to tie it into a scene. It's what, you know, the thing I was talking about. We want it to be very much a scene. We don't want to just. um, I mean, all my mates at Edinburgh have been sending me tapes and saying, you know, fuck all these bastards doing Brighton. What about us? Yeah, fuck, you know. So, um, but the thing is, we want to. we want to create a local scene and a local vibe, so that it actually means something, and it's got a, you know, and then we we, we build it up from there. And we want to we want to do it in kind of sort of um, in clusters of locality, and also you can you can properly give artists properly. Su- we want to try and support them. You know, we want to try and kind of give them a bit of market and give them a bit of promotion. Um, and not just bung stuff out in a label that, you know, that maybe someday, you know, one in 30 might be a hit and you might make some money from them. And, you know, so we want to actually, we don't want to bring anything out and just kind of throw it under a bus. We want to try and make sure that it has some kind of life behind it.
0: Mm. No, that's great, that's, that's exciting. I know that you're also writing some music my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you are currently writing the soundtrack to *Train Spotting* the Musical, is that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, um, we're doing uh, the musical of *Train Spotting*, and um, we tried to, we thought, like Phil McIntyre, who's a uh, West End um, producer, he's been at me for a while to do it as a musical and I've kind of resisted because I thought, um, I thought, well, I mean, you know, I couldn't really see it as a musical and then um, I thought maybe because I can't see it as a musical, it's the right thing to do, it's maybe the right thing to do it as a musical, you know, because I was thinking musicals as being quite fun and camp and, um, but there's a lot of very dark musicals, it's like, you know, kind of Rent's quite dark, West Side Story's quite dark in its own way. Um, even Les Miserables is quite sort of dark too, you know, so you um, you think, well, it might be interesting to do something that's um, you know, we, we, we Phil wanted us to, to license all the tracks from the film and we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to just do a rerun of the film on stage. We wanted it to be uh, something very, very different, you know. So we, we decided to write the songs for it ourselves and uh he insisted that we license three songs, which I think was, um, well, which I know was "Lost for Life," uh, "Perfect Day," and "Born Slippy," because they've come very iconically associated with um, the whole train spotting thing. But we've written about we wrote about um, kind of I think about a dozen, maybe more now, songs for it, uh, which we'll use about ten. So, and. Uh, we were very nervous. We were down in the studio in Brighton, banging these songs out, and um, Steve was just trying to to kind of finally mix them as they were coming down the train from London to hear them, you know, so I was doing all that stuff about, let's go for breakfast, met them at the station, let's go for breakfast first, and then we go, well, we really should get to the studio, you know, no, no, we'll have some breakfast first, and all, we'll, you know, and Steve's texting me, I need another half an hour. Can we, you know, can we go to the studio? Now? You must look at the beach when you're down in Brighton and all this stuff, kind of daft stuff. So eventually we um, we, we got them into the studio. They, or they kind of pushed me into the studio and Steve had just finished um, tidying the songs up. And we played them to, to the fellow um, and his people from London. And they loved them they were just blown away you know we've got a couple of songs in and uh, Paul who's the the, um, the the director at at, uh, at Phil McIntyre's was the producer was saying that uh, we've got a musical we've got a musical there's no doubt about it and uh, we've you know we've been working with a, a cast um, young cast uh, now we're we're looking at theatres, doing the set design. So we're kind of, um, we're ready to go this October. You know, it'll be, it'll be sometime between this October and this, um, February, March, it'll come out, you know, depending on the, um, depending on this, the, your know, theatre availability, basically, and, um, and actor availability. But we'll do it sometime within that time frame. We'll go straight into the West End for a few months, and, um, uh, Keep it, and then take it on the road, take it right round the UK, and then go back into the West End. So that's our plan for it so far.
0: I'm very intrigued by your creative process, uh, because you seem to genuinely delight in it, (laughs) when it can be a struggle for most people, myself included. And I know you've said in the past that writing books comes very easily to you. Do you feel the same way about writing music?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think anything you do creatively, you kind of um, you have to see it as a kind of square goal with yourself basically, you know, you're trying to um, you're trying to sort of psychically smash fuck out of yourself and see what emerges, you know and um, and I think that uh, the more, but the first draft the more kind of unruly it is and the more um, the more sort of um, messed up you are about it and the the more hostile you feel and ambivalent you feel about it, often the better. You know, I mean, I, kind, I like to, um, I'll, you know, it's, it's pretty much the, the same process with music. Is, you know, it's like, sometimes if I'm, um, if I'm writing something, I'll get, uh, I'll get some idea, you know, I'll get, I'll get some internal little rhythm going, and I'll jump away from the writing, from the, the novel or whatever it is, or screenplay. And I'll start to mess around on a keyboard and uh, kind of um, mess around with sampling to just try to, to, to capture what I've, the vibe that I've been feeling. You know? and conversely, sometimes when I'm messing around, if we're messing around in the studio trying to get something together, um, I'll start thinking about um, a character i will just pop into my head as a result of that. You know, thinking like... Um, and then I just think, I want to get out of here, and I want to get t- onto my my laptop and start smashing out some words, basically, you know? So that's, you know, it's like, keep it, for the first draft of anything, you know, keep it as unruly and chaotic as possible, and then try and tease order out of it for the, you know, subsequent drafts.
0: That's interesting. So are you finding it, not easy, but um, are you juggling your different creative pursuits? Uh... <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's um, you go from one to the other, and it's been really, it's been a crazy time because I've been uh, been working, we've been working editing Crime Two for ITV uh, and re-editing Crime One for it to go out from a streaming platform onto terrestrial, which is a different kind of rules, basically. Um, been getting the musical together, uh, been editing a book, um, been working on a radio show in America with Brett Easton Ellis um, and working with uh, Jonas Ackerland on a, a Berlin TV show, a Berlin kind of um, sort of uh, fall off the Berlin walls kind of slash, kind of um, beginning a love parade type of uh, drama. Um and uh, just uh, editing another book with uh, John King and Alan Warner, which we started doing during the last lockdown, and we've, con- we've done a second one now. Um, and, yeah, so it is. It's like, a, you know, we've, we've got the obviously we've got the label stuff um, and a few DJing gigs coming up and also our kind of techno kind of thing. So it's... We just shot a video for that too, so it's a lot of different things and to jump between. But it's, it's interesting, it kind of um, I've got to be involved in these things, otherwise I'm just kind of making a nuisance of myself, you know, I'm hanging around bars and kind of clubs and um, just uh, kind of drinking too much and getting up to too much nonsense. So the devil does make work for idle hands, so it's best for me to be really busy.
0: Are you still going to clubs at all? I know you, you mentioned to me backstage that you're living back in London now.
1: Well, that's why I started DJing again, because um, because I was like, think, you know, it's like, um, I was fed, you know, it was like, when I stopped DJing, I was fed up kind of being one of the oldest people in the club, basically, and now, uh, astonishingly kind of <laughs> 20 years on um, I've started again and I'm actually not the oldest people in the, the people in the club it's all old people and young people that go to clubs nowadays there's no middle-aged people at all you yeah? so um, it's quite interesting to, to see that phenomenon um, and uh, there's so many people from that kind of era of acetocer that are, that, you, that are still going to Going clubbing and are still dedicated clubbers, which is quite um, quite amazing. So it's um, it's fun to uh, to go out because you know you you kind of um, you don't sense that uh, people are saying, "Who's that old pervert hanging around at the back of the club?" Fuck, it's a DJ, you know, but, or maybe they are, but they're saying it to everybody and not just me.
0: One thing that you didn't mention in your long list of ongoing projects is a a documentary that I think is coming out about your life. Um, (laughs) Do you know what we can expect from that? And um, I believe it's coming out in the next year, is that right?
1: Well, um, it's worse than that. There's actually two documentaries that are being made on me at the same time. And uh, I mean, I, I think one, is massively excessive, but two, it's a bit like kind of buses. You know, it's like uh, I've got a, a really good pal who said I wanted to, to do a documentary on you, and um, to to produce this documentary, and I thought, yeah, and I thought nobody nope, will be interested in doing a documentary on me because it's not, you know, it's not a particularly interesting story. Um, and uh, another another pal had said like. Yeah, we're going to do a documentary on you. I said, "Yeah, great." And I forgot all about telling the first pal. Yeah, let's do it. And they both at once, literally in the same week, about two years later, said, "Right, we've got funding for the documentary." You know, so I thought, "Fuck, there's no way this is going to work out." Like, you know, I mean, (laughs) who wants to see two documentaries on me? You know, so I tried to get them talking together and say, you know, my my initial hope was that they would work together and produce one kind of um, super documentary but they've got a bit territorial about it and they're kind of hanging on to their turf so hopefully I've managed to push them in different directions and make one more about the the train spotting phenomenon and all that with people talking about it and you know about the... um, from um, from book to musical and encompassing stage play and um, and film, obviously, uh, and the other one about about me, basically. Um, so, uh, yeah, that that's the plan. I mean, I, they seem, you know, hopefully they're not covering the same territory. But you know, I thought one actually one of the one of them have been following me around for about a year now. You know, so. Um, It's funny, because you don't think you do anything interesting, and then you think to yourself, fuck, they've been in Miami with me, they've been in Berlin with me, they've been in Ibiza with me, they've been in LA with me, kind of, you know, been in Dublin, they've been in uh, Edinburgh, Glasgow, London with me. So I do get around a bit more than I think I do. Because when you're writing, you're in your own head, and you're not really consciously aware that you're moving into different spaces.
0: Well, I think we're closing in on the last uh, minute or so. Do you have any, I don't know, any closing notes about the multidisciplinary creative process or club life, nightlife?
1: No, I mean, my only closing note would be to thank everybody for coming along and supporting this this whole conference in general. and for listening to me talking shite for half an hour, which is, uh, is I, wouldn't, I wouldn't consciously put anybody through that. So um, hopefully, we could maybe um, there'll, be, there'll be more, there's, there's more party stuff happening later on, isn't there? So yeah, hopefully everybody will um, <coughs> they'll, they'll be able to, they'll be rewarded later on for showing up here during the day. So enjoy the rest of the conference and thank you very much for coming.
0: Thank you for listening to Resonant Advisors Exchange with Irvine Welsh. You can browse our full archive of episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you love this show, leave us a review and a rating as it helps us get our stories to more ears, and subscribe to our channel to keep up to date on everything we have coming out. If you have any ideas for someone you'd like to hear on the RA Exchange, or documentaries, or series ideas you'd like for us to explore, feel free to reach us over email at exchange at ra.co. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.